Amen. Open your Bibles to Genesis. Get used to that. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. I hope uh, some of you will go online and on YouTube look up Psalm 8, Shane and Shane, and I hope that you'll learn that song. Uh, it's, when, you, when you listen to Shane and Shane, it's not going to be quite as good as what Noah did up here, okay? But as you as a family are doing your family devotions, why not punch that in YouTube, Psalm 8, Shane and Shane, and sing that together as a family? Uh, maybe as a husband and wife, maybe just in your own personal quiet time, make that as an individual, even as a single a part of your quiet time. I think the Lord will use that in your life as you sing unto him. And I, I hope that'll become an important song for us over these next weeks. There are 66 books in the Bible. 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. Each one of them is equally inspired. We cannot say that one is more inspired than the other. The Holy Spirit did great work in causing the writers of scripture to write down the very words of God. Red letter, black letter, every page God inspired this book to be written down for his glory and to call a people out to himself to do his work in this world of making disciples. Genesis 1 through 11 is the first part of this book. As you know, Genesis is the first book in the Bible. If you're still leafing through the pages of your Bible trying to find Genesis, just go back to the front. It's right there, the very first one. And the first 11 chapters in Genesis is foundational to the rest of the Bible. It's all important. But as you look at these 11 chapters, you're going to see how foundational it is to our understanding of God, to our understanding of redemption, and to our understanding of what we're supposed to do while we're here on earth. No wonder it's been scrutinized, attacked, dismissed in part or altogether. Interestingly, in the third chapter of Genesis, we get the first ta- attack on the word of God by the devil himself. Did God really say? And so as we look at Genesis 1 through 11, we're going to affirm time and time again that God did really say these things. And what is stated in these first 11 chapters are applicable, are true, are relevant, or are helpful to all that God wants to do in our lives today. Genesis 1 in verse 1 and verse 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was out without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was ho- hovering over the face of the waters. Pray with me. Father, we come before you this morning, humbly, Because if you had not revealed yourself, there's no way we would have known you. Yes, you've made yourself known through creation. But you've made yourself known in a personal, knowable way through the inspiration of Scripture, through revealing yourself. And I pray that as we begin this study in Genesis that you'll make yourself known even more clearly. Grow us deeper. Grow us 
in ways that we never thought that we would grow in our faith. I pray that you would expand our understanding of who you are, that you will humble us by really showing us who we are, and that we will become the people that you put us here on earth to be. God, we surrender, we submit, we confess. Without you, we are nothing, and without your help, we could understand nothing. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This week, you may have experienced something that my neighborhood did. Our power went out. We woke up early Monday morning, and we had no power until Wednesday afternoon. So it was an interesting beginning to our week this week. Well, when I woke up on Monday morning, I went to cut the light on, and it didn't work. That's not a good sign. But I started asking the wrong question at first. Well, maybe I need a new light bulb. Maybe the light switch had gone out, and I needed to have an electrician, or maybe my wife. She, she does a lot of handy stuff, by the way. I, maybe I, we work together. I, that, I, I just feel like I lost all my manhood this morning. <laughs> but but uh, something was wrong, and, and, and I, I knew that it, uh, there was a problem, but I was asking the wrong question. It, was, it maybe was a helpful question at first to make me realize it wasn't the light bulb, it wasn't the light switch, because none of the light switches worked, but there was a greater problem, a deeper problem. It was that there were power poles down, there were power lines down. The source of our electricity was down, and so therefore the light switch and the light bulb would not work. In the same way, the world is rarely asking the right questions about life. Oftentimes they're asking, what can I do to make me happy? What, what thing can I purchase? What relationship do I need? What needs to change about this person or that person to really make me happy in life? And whatever it is that fills in your blank, for what would really make you happy is most likely your idol in life. And God just chips away at that. Somehow, we've got to make sure we're asking the right questions. Why? How did I get here on earth? These are the foundational questions that get us back to the source of the problem. How did I get here on earth? Oh, why am I here on earth? If a good God created the world. Why is everything so messed up? What will happen when I die? Now, again, oftentimes people don't naturally ask those questions. Sometimes we have to help them ask those questions. That's a part of our making disciples is helping them to realize it's not the light bulb. It's not the light switch. It's not what will or will not make you happy. It's that you were put here on earth by someone. You were put here on earth for a reason. And when you leave this earth, that person who put you on earth is the one that you will stand accountable to one day. So if we can get, begin to have people ask the right questions, where do we go for the right answers? And that's where we come back to the scriptures. The Bible. The Bible is given to us by God to teach us about himself and what a relationship with him looks like. 
He created us, and even though we chose sin, He chose to provide a way of salvation. That's the one story of the Bible. It's a book about God and how God created us to have a relationship with Him and what God has done so that that we can have a relationship with Him. It's a, it's a book with one story from Genesis to Revelation. And if you don't get that one storyline, there's no way you'll be able to understand any of the 66 books of the Bible, much less the Bible itself. Now, this book, the Bible, not only has one story, but it has two parts. It has the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament promises a Savior, one that will help us. And you look at the categories that fall in the Old Testament. Now, I'm going to treat you like a class for a few minutes here. So just walk with me. This is important to get this information down, class, so that we can understand this book. Someone might read Genesis and say, I don't get it. Well, here's some background to begin to help you. The Bible is one story. The Old Testament, I typically consider being put together in five categories. It's not like if you read all 39 books of the Old Testament that it's one chronological line. It's, it's not put together chronologically. The Old Testament is put together categorically. So we have, first, the law books, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Now, I do things to try to help me remember things, and so I'm going to give you some words that may help you to remember these five categories. But Genesis is about learning about the beginning, That's what the word Genesis means, beginning. And therefore, some uh, older manuscripts, even at the beginning of it, says in the beginning instead of any other title. But that's what Genesis means, beginning. And so Genesis is about our learning about the beginning. And it's learning about the Savior. It gives us our need. We can't live up to a holy God. The law books are there, these first five books. Sometimes people call them the Pentateuch, five books of the law, law books. We cannot live up to a holy God, the need for a Savior. The history books come next, Joshua through Esther. It shows us life without a Savior, the ups and downs, the obedience, the disobedience. And then you move on to the wisdom books after the history books from Job to Song of Solomon. And you see the desire for a Savior. Oh, that I had an advocate, Job would say. And the psalmist cries out for a refuge and help. It's a desire for a Savior that we see in the poetry books. And then the major prophets, the expectation of a Savior. The minor prophets, the expectation of a Savior as they tell us of the one who will come. And so all of the Old Testament, each one of these five categories points us to a Savior. It's promising us a Savior. Now, the law books themselves, let's think about them, where Genesis fits in. Genesis is in the Old Testament, one of those 39 books. But Genesis is also a part of the law books, the first five books. As I said, Genesis is about learning about the beginning, the beginning of time, the beginning of humanity. God has always existed. Time has not God created time, and God created the world, and God created a plan of redemption for us to be restored to him because he knew there would be failure. So it's learning about the beginning. Exodus is leaving, Exodus, exit, 
departing, leave, exit on the back of the door, leaving slavery. And then you move to Leviticus. It's loving God. How are we going to love God in the midst of our sin, in the midst of a, of a fallen world? Well, God gives rules and regulations. He gives commandments so that we can love Him and worship Him until the appointed time the Messiah comes. And then numbers, it's listing generations. It's counting, listing generations. The generation that God said you cannot go into the promised land because of your disobedience. And then the new generation that arises that will go into the promised land. So there are two generations that are listed that are counted in numbers. And then Deuteronomy, before they go into the promised land, Moses preaches two sermons. And so therefore Deuteronomy, we could say it's listening to the word of God as God prepares this new generation to go into the promised land that Joshua will lead them in. Law books. It's helpful for us to get context as we think about the Old Testament. The Old Testament promises a Savior. The New Testament delivers a Savior. So oftentimes when people are reading their Bibles, we say start in the New Testament because you understand the Savior through the New Testament and you're able to understand all the prophecies and all that points to and promises the Savior in the New Testament, in, uh, in the Old Testament. So uh, again, God promises a Savior in the Old Testament, God delivers. It's a major turning point from the last page in chapter of Malachi, Malachi chapter 4 to Matthew chapter 1, God is working uh, in a way that is uh, different between that intertestamental time period. So let's, let's think through some points of Genesis. First, Genesis is historical. It's historical. If we're going to learn about the beginning, it's important that we go back and we think about what, what was intended when these words are written down. If God inspired these words, what were the original readers understanding? And it was history. This is not a clever, man-made story. This is evidence of God at work and God speaking to his people about what he did in the beginning, speaking creation into existence. There's not really any evidence that would point toward it being an allegory. There's not really any evidence of us thinking of it in any other terms other than historical. And so Genesis is divided in two, in two ways, if you wanted to outline it. First, the first 11 chapters are primeval history. First, origins, beginning, the beginning of time. And so you have creation, you have the fall, you have the flood, and you have Babel, the Tower of Babel. All of these are, are primeval history, the beginning, first things. We have a record of what time and the world was like at the very beginning when God created it. And of course, as you move into chapter 12, chapters 12 through 50 is more of what people would call patriarchal history. The fathers of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. You see these key players. God chose a man that he would make into a nation, the Israelites. And that would begin the plan of redemption as God would bring his son through that chosen nation of Israel. 
You see, Genesis is historical, and as we go through it, we're going to make some connections of how the New Testament writers viewed it and how the original readers would have viewed it and try our best to understand it in those terms. That's why sometimes we have to look at it and say, this is not a scientific book. Is it true to science? Yes. But God sometimes works outside of the scientific method. We call those miracles. We call that supernatural. And what God did in the beginning was a supernatural act. God God is able to work inside the normal patterns of this world. He chooses to oftentimes. But God is also able to work outside of the normal patterns of this world. And I think as we go through Genesis, we're going to see that he intended for us to read this uh, in a supernatural way that he calls the world into existence by his very words. So Genesis is historical. As you look back to Genesis 1-1, I would tell you as well, Genesis 1-1 is theological. The whole book is, the whole Bible is, to be a theological book means it's about God. Genesis is not just about the creation of man. Somehow, if we're not careful, when we read the Bible, we, we just read ourselves into it all the time. What does this say to me? How do I fit into this text? And we're always trying to read ourselves into the text, and that becomes very man-centered. What, what am I getting out of this? As opposed to, what does this teach me about God? The Bible is very God-centered. It's, it's theological. It's about Him. And so when you read in Genesis 1-1, it says, in the beginning, God. It wasn't in the beginning, man. It's in the beginning, God. It's very theological. We're learning about God. And, And one of the things we learn about God is that God exists outside of time. He is eternal. He's always existed. There's never a time that God didn't exist our, our kids typically will ask, well, well, who made God? You know, God made us, God made you, God made me. Well, who made God? Well, nobody made God. God is eternal. He's always existed. The Father, the Son, and the, and the Spirit are, are God, and each person of the Trinity, God is one, and yet He exists eternally in three persons. Each person in the Trinity has existed eternally. The Son was not created He rather left heaven and took on human flesh in the incarnation. And the Spirit has always existed. And at the very least, when God says in chapter 1, let us make man, there are those seeds that are being planted that, that although God is one, He exists eternally in three persons. Let us make man in our image. God exists outside of time. He's always existed. But God expresses himself inside of time. In the beginning, God, who's always existed, created the heavens and the earth. Ex nihilo. I don't throw a lot of Greek and Hebrew words out of there, but you you get it. Out of nothing. God made something out of nothing. It wasn't like there was already some stuff here and God said, well, let me just make a snowman. You know, the snow's already here. Let's make a snowman. God God created something out of nothing. 
He expresses himself inside of time. Sometimes, as I said, it's a process, and sometimes this is a supernatural act. And what we find in Genesis 1 is this supernatural act of God speaking the world into existence. He is the creator. So what did he create? Well, he created the heavens and the earth. He created everything that is here on the earth and everything that is in the heavens. A world. I would argue, and I think as we look at the text, we'll see, he created a world with age. Some will say, well, Rodney, I mean, it looks like the evidence is pointing to millions of years of existence. Well, I think there's a lot of question in some of the dating methods that are used. No doubt. You can read a lot about some of the dating methods. But what I would also say to you, it is true that it takes light a long time to travel. But why would we think that God didn't create light where it already is when he created it? Why did we think it had to take millions of years when God spoke it? It was all there. Even things that sometimes I think about Adam. God didn't create just a conceived uh, egg, a fertilized egg, and then Adam over time grew out of that. God didn't even create a, just a baby outside the womb that would now grow up. God didn't create a child. God created a grown man. So he created him with age. And so I don't have any problem with thinking that when God created the world, he created it with age to begin with. And then, of course, when you understand what happens with the flood when we get there, there's a lot that happens that explains how some things appear to have aged, but because of the rapid flooding that took place, it happened quickly, not over millions of years. So you're going to hear me argue over and over again for a very young earth, six to 10,000 year range when you add up all the ages that would go back to Adam. Now, they lived a long time, and, and six to 10,000 years is a long time. You think about our own nation. How long has our nation been in existence? Just over 200 years. You think, that's, that's, we, we've been around forever. Well, no, that's a relatively short period of time. When you look at 10,000 years, God expresses himself inside of time. We see what he created. He created the world with age. Why did he create it? Well, he created it for his glory. That's why God acts. He's the greatest good. I like what Michael Reeves has done in his book, Delighting in the Trinity. If you want to read about the Trinity, this is my favorite book on the Trinity. Delighting in the Trinity. This is what Michael Reeves says The father so enjoyed his fellowship with his son that he wanted to have the goodness of it spread out and communicated or shared with others. And not only is God's joyful, abundant, spreading goodness the very reason for creation, the love and goodness of the triune God is the source of all love and goodness. See, God is so good and generous, he wanted to share himself. So he created us to share himself with. He made us in his image so that we would have the capability of fellowshipping with him and knowing him. What a good, gracious, generous God. Even though he knew there would be some who would rebel because he knows all things. 
He was willing to create us so that we could enjoy the greatest good of God himself. I was pleased to receive in the mail not long ago John Piper's new book, Providence. Listen to what he says about this idea of why God created the world. God created the world with the goal that it would display his glory and find an echo in the praises of his people. Since the last book of the Bible gives us a glimpse of the final effect of creation in producing echoes of God's glory and the songs of heaven, we should not be surprised when we read in the first chapter of the Bible how God prepared for that very outcome. He created man, the capstone of his creation, in his own image and commissioned him to multiply and fill the earth with images of God. The greatest good just spreading all over the earth, enjoying Goodness and love in its fullest sense. So we're, we're created to know God, to love God, and enjoy God. I, I think another question that we might ask when we think about this idea of theology in Genesis 1-1 is, why did God create the world in six days? Why didn't he just do it all at one time? Or why didn't he do it over millions of years? Why, why are we thinking six days? Well, God shows us he's a God of order. Remember, he's making himself known through this book. And even through the creative order, he's making himself known. God's a God of order. And as you look at the first three days and you see how those three days provide the environment for the, for the next three days, uh, things of creation that fit into those first three days, you begin to say, God is a God of order. And so, methodically, God creates the world because he's making himself known. Secondly, God shows us the value he places on his glory and his people. We're made in his image. It's, it's a world that will support people who are made in his image so that they can enjoy the greatest good and give glory to him. If you don't know God, then you can't really walk with God, and you can't enjoy him, and you can't bring glory to him. God is gracious that he would send his son the eternal son to come and to make us right with him. Thirdly, God shows us the dependency of all creation on the creator. Nothing exists without him and nothing could continue to exist without him. No matter what part of creation, you can't just say it all just, it all just happened. God methodically created things in uh, the, the stated time frame and in stated order so that we can see there's value in all that he created. And that we're all dependent on him as our creator. Nothing exists without him and nothing could continue to exist without him. He is vitally involved. Let me give you the third point on your note-taking outline. Genesis is supernatural. It's historical. It's theological. It's about God. And it's also supernatural. So just as we thought about Genesis being historical, we're learning about the beginning. Just as we thought about it being theological, we're learning about God. And now, thinking about Genesis being supernatural, we're going to learn a little bit more about faith. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 11. Hold your place here. Hebrews chapter 11. Just as I told you, you can look up Psalm 8 on YouTube, Shane and Shane, and you can learn that song because we're going to be singing it quite a bit over these next weeks. You can also 
mark in your Bibles, Hebrews 11, 1 through 3. This is going to be our church-wide scripture memory passage. At some point, I may preach a message on this text just because it's so meaty. Uh, just as even as I was thinking about it, I was thinking about four C's. And when you have four C's, you've already got a message, right? There's a sermon. It's already alliterated there. But Hebrews 11, I, just as we want you to learn that song, we want you to learn this text. And parents, lead your children, disciple them to memorize this. Parents, adults, singles, lead yourself to memorize this text. Now, faith, verse 1, Hebrews 11, now faith, we we'll know what it is. It's the assurance of things hoped for. I, I, I would say that's confidence in the word of God. Confidence. You have assurance for the things hoped for. Confidence in what God has promised, right? The conviction, that's your second C. Assurance is, a, is confidence. And then the conviction of things not seen. And so, not only do we have confidence in the Word of God, we have conviction about the Word of God. It's His Word. He's inspired it. We at Lawndale, we are striving to be a biblical and an intergenerational church. But the biblical is that what we do, we want to be focused on the Scriptures. What we sing, we want it to be true to Scripture. What we do in ministry and effort and in time, And in sermons, we want to be focused on Scripture. We want to be a biblical church. If God has made himself known, and he has through Scripture, then we would do well to study the Scripture, study to show ourselves approved so that we could know him and serve him, enjoy him, walk with him and obey him. So it's the conviction of things like faith. We're having confidence in the Word of God, conviction about the Word of God, for by it, that is faith, The people of old received their commendation. So you see your third C, commendation based on the word of God. If you believe what God says, you'll be commended by God. As Abraham was, he was a man of faith. He believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. And so for by it, faith, you believe the word of God. The people of old received their commendation. Verse 3, by faith... We understand that the universe was created. So that's your fourth C, isn't it? The universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So creation by the word of God. So Rodney, we're studying in Genesis. Why are we memorizing a text in the New Testament? Well, because it tells us about Genesis right here. In verse 3 especially, You see how the people of old were commended by God? Well, it was their faith in the word of God. And so he says, verse 3, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now, do you have to believe in the word of God to please God? (laughs) I would say yes. Look down in verse 6. This is not a part of your memory text, but Hebrews 11, verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. 
So faith is extremely important to us. You are not going to please God without faith. And where is our faith uh, rest? It's in the Word of God. What God has made known about Himself in Genesis 1-11 through is very much a part of that. Notice in John 20, you say, well, I can't go back. There's no video of Genesis 1 through 11. I can't see what happened with my very eyes. It's just a historical account. Am I supposed to believe it if I can't see it? Well, one of Jesus' disciples had a problem with believing when he couldn't see, right? Doubting Thomas? Notice in John chapter 20 what Jesus had to say about faith and not seeing. John 20 in verse 29. Jesus said to him, Thomas, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's a pretty important statement for us. Because we might have some who work in the science community. Now whether they have correct science or not, that will be determined by what they believe about the Word of God, right? Because people can be scientists and not have correct scientific views. I believe everything that we see in Scripture one day will be validated and be seen as true. Whether present day people accept it or not. There are a lot of views of man that have changed drastically over the years. We could give examples of ways that men's view have changed over the years, but God's view never changes. His word never changes. And I'm telling you to believe Genesis 1 through 11 is going to require faith. Now, I might say to you, it would take more faith for for me to believe the world just evolved without God than that it just, a big bang occurred and all these complex organs grew into a person. And not only one person, Adam, but somehow there had to be a second person that just evolved. How else would multiplication take place? A perfect human that would fit another per- I mean, to me it's mind-boggling to, be, to believe that a person could have just evolved out of some kind of primordial soup. I mean, it, it, it's unbelievable. It's, it's unbelievable. And so when I read Genesis and I compare it to what they believe, I say, man, this is believable. There's a God who's eternal. There's a God who is gracious and good and he chose to make people that they could enjoy his goodness and that his glory would be spread over the whole earth. I'm thinking, man, I can can believe that. But it's going to require faith for us to believe that. Genesis is supernatural. Now, look at another New Testament verse in Colossians 2 verse 4. Thank you for bearing with me this morning just to do some background work, but I think it's going to set us up for a really good study as we dig into the text of Genesis. But notice, I 
I, I tell you, let's just, let's just read all four of these verses in Genesis 2 to begin with. For I want you to know how great a struggle I've had for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In other words, Paul is saying, man, I want people to enjoy life like God meant. And the only way to ever get to that life is to be in Christ. To know that you're a sinner that goes back to the fall of man with Adam and Eve, that we're all sinners, we're, we're undone, we're alienated, we're enemies of God because we've rebelled against God. But God had a plan. The patriarchal history begins to, to really show it being uh, lived out with Abraham and this nation that God caused himself to be a people that will be a missionary nation and that one day his son would come out of the Messiah from the not only the lineage of Adam but the lineage of Abraham and the lineage of David, this son of David, this son of God, Jesus. And he said that's where life is. And I've always found verse 4 to be so helpful here in Colossians 2. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. There are a lot of arguments that are being made in the classrooms, in the universities, in the workplaces, and in homes against God that even exist. There are a lot of arguments that are being made against God creating the world. And some of them are plausible. They're believable because you can make an argument for almost anything you want to argue for. Believe me, I'm married. <laughs> when I'm right, I'm right. <laughs> I, in my mind, I can make an argument for the thing I believe the most and realize later, man, I sure was stupid. And so when it comes to the things of God, the, th the world, and, and especially this deceptive, conniving, manipulative serpent, Satan himself, don't you think he wants us to believe there is no God? And that if we believe there is a God, that he's not really active and involved. He's some distant God who didn't create every part of this world and especially create each one of us, that we're all just a part of some kind of random selection that we just showed up one day. There's no real meaning, no real purpose in life. And when you take God out of the equation, when you take this uh, record of who God is and how he made us and how he put us here on earth and why we're here, when you take it away, there's no purpose, there's no meaning. The whys of life make no sense whatsoever. And so when the enemy crawls up on your shoulder and he begins to make you doubt that there is a God, when he makes you doubt that uh, that God could have even created the world. The alternative stinks. No purpose, no meaning, no life after death. It's just for nothing. And that's not what life is about. Life is about the glory of God. Knowing Him, enjoying Him, bringing glory to Him because we find our satisfaction, our fulfillment, our purpose in Him through Christ. The enemy would love to deceive all of our kids. And there are a number of ways, ideas that are thrown out there. The Big Bang Theory, the Evolutionary Theory. 
I, I remember even hearing in school, well, all religions have a creation story. So, man, your story must not be true if they all have stories, right? And, and for me, over the years, I've gathered, well, that means that all the more is this story true because those are just substitutes. Those are copycat. The enemy is trying to deceive God's people and deceive the world. And so to me, at this point, that there is a creation. Not that our creation story has to be wrong. It just confirms and validates even more. Watch out for the plausible arguments that are made. Genesis is supernatural. Even the resurrection isn't about the scientific method, is it? To say that Jesus rose from the dead... When I look at some of the miracles, turning the water into wine, I mean, raise, uh, healing people, those are, those are God doing things in addition to the regular, normal patterns of life. And so when we think about Genesis, we think about it being supernatural. Let me give you the last thing here. Genesis is testable. That may sound a little contrary because I'm saying it's not the scientific method. We can't repeat this historical event over and over again. God did it once when he created the world. But in the best sense, we interpret and test the Old Testament by the New Testament. So what did the New Testament writers say about Genesis? That's the test for me. So we're, we're learning about the Bible even more because there are categories of books in the, Bible, in the New Testament. I like to say the five categories of the Old Testament, but there are also five categories in the New Testament. And we think about the Gospels, a record of what Jesus said and did here on earth. Jesus, when he was making arguments, what did he do? Well, he went back to Genesis. In Matthew chapter 19, you can see this very clearly. When Jesus is talking about marriage, they're asking him questions about divorce. In verse 4, he said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And then he goes on. You see, Jesus, Jesus believed the creation story. He's the smartest man that ever lived here on earth, right? You think you're smarter than Jesus? I don't think so. We can look at other passages. I, I love John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. It's eternal. Jesus has always been. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And when you read on in Genesis 1, we see that God created the world. Let me just read those next couple of verses to you. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is the agent of creation. So, so Jesus in the Gospels, that category, but also the, the letters of Paul. We could go to Acts, that's a part of that too, Acts 17, but the letters of Paul. Look in uh, Romans chapter 5. I, I don't have time to go over all these passages. Uh, Romans chapter 5, if you see them on the screen, you can write down some of those extra passages. But in Romans 5, notice Paul's argument about life in Christ in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, you see, he's acknowledging the creation story. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted when there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam 
to Moses. Even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one who was to come. So Paul is saying, these are great passages of Scripture, like 1 Corinthians 15, verse 39. There's one flesh of animals, there's one flesh of birds, and there's another flesh of man. We're not all of the same flesh. We didn't all evolve out of the same stuff. God made us differently. And it's very clear that the New Testament writers believed the creation story in Genesis and taught it and preached it as historical. Even the general letters, so you move the Gospels and Acts, historical uh, part of uh, the New Testament, that category, Gospels and Acts, and you get the Paul's letters, and then you get the general letters, letters that were written by other people besides Paul, and maybe First Peter, excuse me, Second Peter chapter 3, let me just read part of that. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 4. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. You see the, how the earth was formed ultimately by the word of God. Verse 6, and that by means of, their, of the, these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. That's the flood. And by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept into the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. There's a plan in place. And Genesis is the beginning of that plan of all of God's creation. You can even go to the book of Revelation, that fifth category of prophecy, and you see creation being talked about, and Revelation is the restoration of what was created in Genesis. A lot of parallels in Genesis and Revelation. But it still comes back, did God actually say? Did he speak the world into existence? So, so let's start by asking the right questions. How did I get here? If you're here this morning and you're not right with God, how did you get here? Well, God put you here. You're not here out of random chance. You're not here just over a series of, of possibilities and, and coincidences and luck. You're here on earth because God put you here on earth and he has a design for your life to bring glory to him. That's the why you're here, to know him, to enjoy him, and to glorify him. If you're not living for that purpose, then you're missing the very purpose you're put here on earth to do. You're trying to change the light bulb. You're trying to turn on the light switch and the power lines down. You're missing it all together if you're not in acknowledgement of how you got here and why you are here. And then what will happen when you die? Well, if there's no creator, it makes it easy. I, I'm just going to go to nothing. But if there's a creator, one day I'm going to stand and I'm going to give an account to him. I think that's what makes it easier for someone to be an atheist, to believe there is no God, or to believe that if there is a God, he's distant, he's not involved, and, because they don't want to give an account of their lives. All of us are sinners, and if we get what we deserve, it would be death and hell and punishment. But in Christ, you can be restored to what God meant for you to be, Amen. to be right with God to know Him, to love Him, to walk with Him, and to enjoy Him. This morning, we would love to help you to begin that relationship with God. 
There'll be pastors who are available after the service. I'll be in Guest Central. Nothing would make any of us any happier than to help you take those next steps in your relationship with God. If you're a student, a child, and you're hearing all these ideas, you're seeing it on the PBS stations, and you're seeing all these ideas about uh, how life is without a God or without God, I want to give you some assurance this morning. It's right here. God's made himself known to us. We can live with confidence in the word of God, with deep conviction about the word of God, so that one day we'll be commended by the one who put us here on earth, our creator himself. And in this time of invitation, as we sing this morning, the altar is open. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we're able to think about you this morning, to know you, to think clearly about you because you've made yourself known. And I pray that right now in these moments that any of those doubts that the enemy plants in our mind that they would be dispelled because we have confidence in your word. There's conviction here. And I pray that those who don't know you this morning, that they would come to terms with what the real problem is. That it's a soul, it's a heart problem. And Lord, I pray that there would be a surrender, a sweet surrender to the God who put them here on earth and provided a way for them to be saved through Christ. Lord, let that happen today. For those who already know you, may they grow deeper in their faith because of the assurance that you give us through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.